Welcome to 66 Lessons for Life, the weekly radio program recorded live at the Naples Conference Center in Naples, Florida. Taught by our teacher, John Garepa, an attorney who guides us in the way of wisdom with a biblical worldview. You're invited to join us for the study. We're going to begin our lesson, and we're going to go back into Joshua chapter 5. We will continue with where we were last week. I have a couple verses that I want to look at before I start the new section, and that is Joshua chapter 5, verse 10. And you know, as we begin this, this is where the uh, Jewish group, three million Jews, have navigated across the Jordan River. They've navigated the Jordan River. They've now come across the bank. Uh, and as they've come across the bank, God has called them to holiness and sanctification. They are now entering the promised land where they have not been in the promised land before. Forty years earlier, they should have been in the promised land. But instead, in disobedience, they didn't honor God. They didn't trust God. They went in their own way. They looked at the giants and said, oh, we can't. There's giants. And so they've spent 40 years wandering in a desert to such an extent that every man, every person who is 20 years old or older has died. In the 40 years, the only people that are left now that left Egypt are those that are under 20 as God is building a new generation, demonstrating what it means to be holy. And so they've crossed. They've trusted God. They followed the Ark of the Covenant as the Ark of the Covenant was brought into the river and the river dries up and three million Jews traverse it and walk to the other side. And so we spoke about that. We spoke about what that means. And so here they are on the, on the banks of the Jordan River that they've crossed and now are beginning to look at going into the promised land. And so somebody asked me a question last week, which I thought was a, a good one afterwards, that needed to be answered. And they asked me, how big was the promised land? How large was the promised land? Is the promised land what we see today? In the Bible, if we look to Israel, is that what we see? Is that what the promised land is, is to be? And as, as a matter of fact, it is not. It is not. What you see today in Israel is a speck of what God had given the Jewish people. It is actually, and I've tried to calculate it, it is about one-seventh the size of what God had given to Abraham. Turn, if you would, to Genesis chapter 15. Genesis 15, verse 18. This is the covenant that God is making with Abraham. Actually, we'll start with 17 so you see how serious this covenant is. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said to your descendants, underline that, to your descendants, meaning not just you, but really to your descendants. I give this land from the river of Egypt, that is the Nile, to the great river, the Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, Hittites, Perizzites, Rephaelites, Amorites, Canaanites, Girgashites, and Jebusites. How far is that? Well, let me tell you, folks. It's about seven or eight times the land that is currently occupied by Israel. I laugh when I hear the Palestinian question come up. 
All right? I laugh when I hear the Palestinian question up because here's the deed. You know, when you're a lawyer, when you hire a lawyer to go and search whether you have title to the house, they go to the courthouse and they go back in time to see where was the original grant. Where were the boundary lines set? Well, here it is, folks. I'm giving you the boundary lines. So what does it mean? Well, what it means is that God had given the Jewish people land that started in, in the Nile River in Egypt. So it, it contained part of what is Egypt today, the Sudan, Lebanon, Jordan, Syria, a part of Iraq, a part of Asian Turkey, and of course, all of Israel, including Gaza and the West Bank. All of that I give to you, Abraham, and your descendants. And for those of you who said, I don't understand how God could have given the Jews the promised land and didn't give them any oil. Guess what? It's there. Oil and gas. Now, what does this mean? It means this. It means this. God's promises are true. He doesn't lie. And so if God said this, this means that at some point in the future, Israel will have that property. It will be theirs. Most likely it'll be when Jesus comes back uh, and it'll be after the last days. I believe that that's what will happen. But Israel, this is what God had promised Abraham. This is what, what God had given to the Jewish people. So when you recognize this and you see it, God says it, you can take it to the bank. It will happen. And so it's amazing right then and there that this was the promised land. I have given it to you. Now, by the way, the Jews had to walk the land. They weren't, it wasn't just that they walked in and everybody died. They had to exercise obedience and submission to God. And that's what we're studying here in Joshua. And you see that. But what an amazing story when you realize how great it is and you see God making this promise to them. And so you understand how great is God that he made this promise to Abraham. And so now we're, we're studying it as they begin day one in their, their attempt to live in the promised land. And so back to Joshua chapter 5, back to Joshua chapter 5, as we look uh, in verse 10. And I want you to just follow along here. On the evening of the 14th day of the month, they're now across the Jordan, while camped at Gilgal on the plains of Jericho, the Israelites celebrated the Passover. The day after the Passover, that very day, they ate some of the produce of the land, unleavened bread and roasted grain. The manna stopped the day after they ate this food from the land. There was no longer any manna for the Israelite, but that year they ate of the produce of Canaan. So what is happening here? Well, God gives supernatural provision when we need it. And the supernatural provision was manna. But now God had opened the door for the promised land. And so as he opens the door for the promised land, God doesn't have to act in a supernatural way. The land itself is God's gift. And that's really how you see it in our life. Yes, sometimes God asks, acts supernaturally for us. But most of the time, God puts you in a place where he wants you to be. And when you are in a place where he wants you to be, he provides for you. It's sometimes the most simplest way. And you see that here as they now are engaged in eating the produce of the promised land. Uh, and it's a powerful picture. And also on this day, they now celebrate the Passover. And what I was surprised at when I studied this, this was only the third Passover 
that they had celebrated in 40 years. That astounded me. So all the years that they wandered in the desert, they really didn't celebrate the Passover. It's very interesting. Now they come out. Now God brings them up to the point in which they become sanctified, in which they, he, he, they've addressed their submission to him. And now God directs that they begin and have the Passover again. So the first time in 40 years, they are studying and beginning with the Passover. Uh, and there's a lot to understand about that aspect of, of what God is teaching them, the Passover. And for us, our Passover is the Lord's Supper. I'm going to make sure you understand that. This is the lesson that you need to understand today. And, and the point of this is very clear. The Jews were told that they needed to have the Passover done forever. It was a lasting covenant. Uh, but I'd like you to turn, if you would, to Leviticus chapter 17, verse 8. And this will be a position that many Orthodox Jews maintain about the Passover. Verse 8, say to them, this is God speaking, any Israelite or any alien living among them who offers a burnt offering or sacrifice and does not bring it to the entrance to the tent of meeting to sacrifice it to the Lord, that man must be cut off from his people. How do you like that? What does that mean? It means that as far as God was concerned, the sacrifice of a lamb had to take place in the temple. You didn't do it in your backyard. You didn't do it in any, any place that was convenient to you. Rather, it had to be done in the temple. Now, fast forward. You know that approximately 40 years after Jesus died on the cross, the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed. That was about 70 A.D. And so, the Jews have had no temple for more than 90, 1,900 years, going on 2,000 years. And so, if you cannot carry out the Passover unless you have a temple, I would say to you, what is God saying about that? Do you believe, as I believe, that God allowed the temple to be destroyed? Do you believe that that was within God's permissive will, that he saw what was going on? And in his permissive will, he allowed the Romans to come in and destroy it. And so now the Jews have a dilemma. They have a dilemma. If they can't go to the temple because the temple doesn't exist, how do they fulfill the Passover requirement? The answer? With the Lord's Supper, celebrating Jesus Christ. It's that simple. It's that simple and yet that profound that you see this. Uh, and Paul spoke about this. If, in fact, God has stopped the very vehicle that you would use to celebrate that Passover, if God has ended that and you cannot do it, the Jews don't do uh, a sacrifice of a lamb anymore. They will actually take a dry bone of the lamb. And so if that is all the case, if, the, if effectively the Passover, the rite of Passover, as we read scriptures, and as some Orthodox Jews will tell you, 
has ended about 2,000 years ago. Well, what does that say about what has God provided? And, I, and I'd like you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And the reason that I do this is the only relevance of us studying the Bible is to know what God wants for us today. When I study the Bible, well, yes, the Bible is a great book. It tells about great historical events. But the question becomes, what is the relevance of these events as it relates to us today? What is God saying to your heart today? You're going to leave this building uh, in about a half an hour. And what does God want you to remember about what you study today? What is his present truth? Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7. Get rid of the old yeast that you may be a new batch without yeast, as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival meaning the Passover, not with the old yeast, the yeast of malice and wickedness, but with bread without yeast, the bread of sincerity and truth. There was a reason why the Jews used unleavened yeast, because they believed that the old yeast that would rise contained uh, evil and was their old ways. And instead, the only way that they could show that they were purging themselves would be with unleavened yeast. New yeast. And as they did that and they ate the unleavened bread during the Passover, it was a recognition that they were submitting themselves to God and repenting. And you see that God has determined that Jesus Christ is our Passover lamb. That's it. And so as you understand that God said to the Jewish people on the banks of the river, before you put one step forward into the promised land, before you go and attack this fortified city, Jericho, before you do anything, you must first worship me. What a powerful lesson that is to me. How that speaks to my heart. That God says to me today where I am as a man, God, search my heart. I know that I need to be holy. I know to, I need to be sanctified. I need to put you first in everything that I'm doing. No matter what your ventures are, no matter where you are going, instead of doing our own thing, Going our own way, we need to be able to make that clear. So God is saying to us today, clean out the old leaven that you may be a new lump. Uh, and what this means is, it means that our, our Passover lamb, Jesus Christ, has been sacrificed once and for all. What a powerful image this is to me, as you understand it. What it means for these Jewish people to be gathered on the banks of the, of the Jordan River on day one. And so here they are, completing the promises that God wanted for them to do. They were circumcised, indicating that they had now contained the covenant, reissued the covenant with God. They had now done the Passover, indicating that they were coming before God and asking to be washed. And now they ate the produce of the land, meaning they were taking what God had given them now, the provision that God had given them, and they were eating that provision and stepping forth and so God honors that. And so now we're going to read a most extraordinary set of events, beginning with Joshua chapter 5, verse 13. Now when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua went up to him and asked, are you for us or for our enemies? Are you getting a picture here? You get a picture? There's three million Jews on the banks, 
And suddenly, in the middle of this area with three million Jews, is a soldier brandishing a sword. This image of a soldier brandishing a sword. And so Joshua says to him very clearly, are you for us or for our enemies? Who are you? Who do you represent? Do I have to go to war against you right now? You see how God speaks. And look at this next verse. Who are you for? Neither. Oh, wow. Neither, he replied. But as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. Who do you think is commander of the army of the Lord? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. And so what a powerful pre-incarnate image of Jesus Christ. And we know that it's several times Jesus has, has appeared in a pre-incarnate uh, version of what he would be in Bethlehem uh, and various points. We know that, that when Abraham was at Mamre, uh, Jesus appeared to him. We know that when Jacob wrestled with the angel, most likely that was, that was the, uh, a pre-incarnate version of Jesus Christ. And I believe here, this is Jesus Christ speaking to Joshua, telling him that I am here, I am commander of the host of the army of God. Can you imagine what that had to be like? And he continues. Then Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence and asked him, what message does my Lord have for his servant? How do you like that? As God speaks to his heart, he knew immediately. What message does my Lord have for his servant? And that speaks to my heart to us, that we ask God for wisdom. We ask God for discernment. All right. And God speaks to you today. You may not see that kind of a vision that he saw, but you, God speaks through the spirit to your heart. You know that it's just like I said this morning when I had that image that I had to pray for somebody. I didn't know why. I didn't know the, the, the intricacies of what was involved, yet I knew God wanted me to pray for somebody. You know that this happens to you all the time. That's God speaking to you. That's God speaking to you, and that's why we have to honor that when God speaks to us in spirit. And so here he is. He bows before Jesus Christ, bowing before the commander of the armies of the Lord. And look at, look at what comes next as he says this. What message does the Lord, my Lord, have for his servant? The commander of the Lord's army replied, take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy. Now, that's come up before, hasn't it? That statement, take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy. Do you remember when Moses spoke to the burning bush right there when Moses first met God? And what did God say to him? Take off your sandals. The place where you are standing is holy ground. And that's that tells you something. So right here in the middle of pagan Canaanite territory, Jesus Christ is there to help his people. What does that say to you? It means that wherever you are, you carry the Lord with you in your heart. Amen. That you're a Christian and you have the Holy Spirit. Jesus is with you. I don't care if it's hostile territory or pagan territory or places where you would never think that God would be. That if you, if you honor and submit to him, God walks with you and he's there with you. And you honor him and you recognize that, it, the, that where he is is holy. And you see this. And so continuing on, the commander of the Lord's army replied, take off your sandals. And now beginning with chapter 6 
as the story continues. Now, Jericho was tightly shut up because of the Israelites. No one went out and no one came in. They were prepared for war. Then the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have delivered Jericho into your hands along with its king and its fighting men. I want to stop and bring that to your attention. I have already delivered Jericho into your hands. How many times have we prayed for something and not understood the answer? How many times have we waited and didn't understand the answer? And yet I want to tell you that God has said that I've already taken care of these issues. You may not like the answer. You may not be prepared for the answer. But if you're submitting to me in my perfect will is what we prayed for these men within your will, Lord. Then I have already answered. I have already provided an answer. And you see that. I've delivered them to you. And so here's the deal. Jericho, all walled up, all tight, sitting there in this fortified city. And let me tell you about this city. The, the walls of this city sat on an embankment. So there was an embankment, first of all. And then the walls went up. I understand, based on historical evidence, that the, the height of the wall including the embankment from the ground level, was about 75 feet high, right? And about five feet wide, imagine. In other words, it would be as if you approached a seven- or eight-story building, and it was all walled and shut up. And now, what kind of weapons of war did this man have? Did he have battering rams? Did he have siege weapons? He had none of that. They had spears and swords. They weren't prepared to enter into a siege against a fortified city, and that's why Jesus said to him, I've already delivered them into your hand. What, a, what an amazing statement that is. And so when you understand what it means when God tells you that I'm leading the army of hosts, what a, what a powerful message that is to me, understanding what does it mean, how God protects us. I want you to turn, if you would, to Second Kings chapter 6. 2 Kings chapter 6, verse 8. And this, I'll set this up. This is a position in which Elisha and his servant have been advising the king of Israel uh, and have been giving him information about the opposing kings as God has delivered to him. And the opposing king has now lost his mind because it's as if there's a spy in the king's bedroom. Every word that the king says to his advisors is somehow given to the king of Israel. And the king uh, of Aram, is, who is what it is, is, is disgusted and trying to find the, the spy. And so now if you read with me, verse 8. Now the king of Aram was at war with Israel. After conferring with his officers, he said, I will set up my camp in such and such a place. The man of God sent word to the king of Israel, and that is Elisha, tells the king of Israel, beware of passing that place because the Arameans are going down there. So the king of Israel checked on the place indicated by the man of God. Time and again, Elisha warned the king so that he was on guard in such places. Can you imagine? It was as if Elisha had a direct line to God who was telling him, don't go there, don't go there. He's over here, he's over there. And you see how God protects us. Amazing. Honestly, you see this. Verse 11. This enraged the king of Aram. He summoned his officers and demanded to them, will you not tell me which of us is on the side of the king of Israel? Who's the spy? Who's spying? None of us, my lord, the king, said one of his officers. But Elisha 
the prophet who was in Israel tells the king of Israel the very words you speak in your bedroom. How's that for a testimony? This is a pagan telling him. Who's by nobody? But Elisha, he hears every word that you say in, your, in the bedroom and he tells him. Well, verse 13, go find out where he is, the king ordered, so I can send men and capture him. The report came back. He is in Dothan. Then he sent horses and chariots and a strong force there. They went by night and surrounded the city. Now get this picture. Are you get this picture? Are you getting desperate? Are you getting lonely? Are you getting gloomy? You're a prophet of the Lord. And now you're sitting there by yourself. There's no army to protect you. You're by yourself. And now verse 15. When the servant of the man of God got up and went out early the next morning, an army with horses and chariots, had surrounded the city. Oh, my Lord, what shall we do? The servant asked. We're finished. Look, we're surrounded by the enemies. We're dead. It's over. In other words, in my human capacity, there's no reason for me to believe that I'm going to be delivered. It's over. It's over. And I want to say to you that when you use your mind to draw these calculations, instead of submitting to God, you're violating the will of God. And that's why I say we honor doctors. We go to doctors. We get checkups. But in the end of the day, folks, and I want to say this very clearly, the only doctor that counts is when Jesus weighs in. When Jesus weighs in on whether you're going to be healed or not. And I honor doctors. And I say, yes, we go to doctors because God gave us doctors and gave us hospitals and gave us diagnostic tests. But no doctor in this world has the last say on where you're going to be. None. And here's, here's proof of this. Here's proof as the hills surrounding Dothan are filled with enemy soldiers. Uh, and so Elisha says in verse 16, don't be afraid, the prophet answered. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Well, what does that mean? Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Open your eyes. Look at the hills. Well, you had to open more than your eyes. You had to open your heart and ask God to give you the wisdom to see. And Elisha prayed, verse 17, O Lord, open his eyes so he may see. Then the Lord opened the servant's eyes and he looked and saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Can you imagine what that had to be like? You look up and you say, oh, no, we're doomed. There's 1,500 chariots all around. And then he prays, Lord, just open our eyes. Open the servant. And then you look up and you see thousands of chariots of fire and angels surrounding them. Realizing that God is in charge. That's what the commander of the army of God has basically told Elisha. That's what he told him right then. And this is what God is saying to us today. You think it's over? You think this doesn't happen today? God is telling you just like he did it then. Just like he did it for the Jews as they looked at Jericho. Just like he did it for Elisha in Dothan. He did the same. And so look as we finish this, this passage uh, in verse 18. As the enemy came down toward him, Elisha prayed to the Lord, strike these people with blindness. So he struck them with blindness as Elisha had asked, and they walked out in freedom. Can you imagine? What a mighty story as you see God intervening, the army of God. There is more with us 
than there is with them. That's such a lesson. And, and there was another passage where Jesus speaks about this. Turn, if you would, to Matthew 26. And this really resonated with me when I went back and, and I read this knowing that what I was studying about Joshua. Uh, Matthew 26, verse 53. And this is in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus is about to be arrested. All right? Jesus is about to be arrested. Um, and when you study how many people the temple, the temple elites took to arrest Jesus, the last time I looked at it, I believe it was about seven or 800. Soldiers, get this picture. Seven or 800 temple soldiers and legionnaires come down to the Garden of Gethsemane to arrest our Jesus. No weapons, no weapons, sitting there praying, asking God to intervene in his life and to give him the strength to make. Can you imagine this? That's how fearful they were about coming to terms with Jesus. Even though they knew who he was, that he was not a man of war, yet they were that fearful of it. And so look, look at what, what goes on here in verse 53. Uh, we'll start with verse 50. Judas kisses Jesus because that's the sign of who Jesus is to be arrested. Jesus replied, friend, do what you came for. Then the men stepped forward, seized Jesus, and arrested him. With that, one of Jesus' companions, we know it's Peter, reached for his sword, drew it out, and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Verse 52, put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think I cannot call on my father, and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? But how then would scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen in that way? Now, I wanted to study what that meant, 12 legions of angels. And what I found was that effectively meant 60,000 angels. Jesus was saying that he could call on God and God would bring 60,000 angels at that point in the Garden of Gethsemane to protect him. Now, you know that we know that one angel, one night in the Old Testament, wiped out 180,000 enemies of the Israelites. One angel! One angel! I ask you, what would 60,000 do? Can you imagine? It would be like no bomb you ever saw. So don't ever think that God capitulates. Don't ever think that God doesn't have the authority or the power to help you. I want to tell you today... You need to leave here to know that you are one with God. That even as things are difficult, even as health issues come up in your life, don't ever think that God doesn't hear you or God can't answer you. I want you to know that each and every one of us are going to face our Jerichos. This is what it is. It's a stronghold. It's an evil stronghold. And so we all, at some point in time, all of us, all of us face these Jerichos. And so here you have the army of God. Convening. This is my fight. I am going to take care of this. Yes, you are a mighty soldier. Yes, you are a mighty commander. But instead, this is something that God is going to do. And I honestly think that this is a lesson that resonates to me today as we understand what God says. And so God is now giving him, going back to Joshua chapter 6. Now God, is Jesus is giving him effectively, here's the plan, Joshua. 
I'm going to lay out for you exactly what we're going to do. Uh, and it's like no military plan you have ever heard of before in your life. Um, and so look at it. Verse 2, chapter 6, verse 2. Then the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have delivered Jericho into your hands, along with its king and its fighting men. March around the city once with all the armed men. Do this for six days. Have seven priests carry trumpets of ram horns in front of the ark. On the seventh day, march around the city seven times with the priests blowing the trumpets. When you hear them sound a long blast on the trumpets, have all the people give a loud shout. Then the wall of the city will collapse and the people will go up every man straight in. Now, I submit to you, you're a military man. you spent your life fighting wars. And now Jesus tells you, I got this covered. Here's the plan. I want you to get the people and every day go marching once around Jericho. Carry the ark. Blow the horn. Silently do this. What would go through your mind? Lord, this doesn't make sense. Jesus, I'm an educated man. Lord, you're good in a lot of things. But this, this is my thing, you see. This is my thing. Do we have my things? I know I have my things. Do we have, do you have your my thing? You know, the thing where you know more than God. You know what I'm talking about. You know more than God. Come on, God, you're up there. I'm down here. You don't know what it's like to be down here. You know, waging these battles. I'm hurting. I'm hurting. I know what I have to do to advance my cause. No, 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 no. Forget the army. Forget the weapons. Put them all down. I want you to get the people, get the three million people, and we're going to march once a day around this. We're going to blow the horn. We're going to carry the Ark of the Covenant. And let's see what happens. On the seventh day, we're going to march seven times around. And then I'm going to say, shout the Lord's name. And the wall's going to fall down. Okay. Okay. Now, I want you to think about, about the submission, first of all, for Joshua. The submission of Joshua. The submission to take my intellect, to take my training, to take my talent, to take my gifts, and to put it there and say, Lord, I'm following you. This is what you want me to do. I'll follow you. I'm going to do exactly what you say. And then think about the people of Israel who are given these instructions to silently do this. Follow this man and follow as they paraded around this wall. And theologians think it took probably near an hour, 45 minutes, to walk around the wall city, which was probably about eight or nine, ten acres, walking around. And I want you to think about what it had to be like to be a Jew walking along the wall. And the people of Jericho are sitting on top of the wall. Do you think they threw insults to them? <laughs> what do you think? You losers! You, what do you think, we're going to give up? You marching, you think we're afraid of you? We're afraid of you? Are you kidding me? We're not afraid of you. You can imagine the insults that came down. And I know what I would have been like if I were one of those Jews that day. I would say, give me a sword. I want to make somebody understand what it's like 
to, to violate God's will and to blaspheme God's will. Uh, and so you understand you know, what it takes to have that obedience. Can we turn off the uh, phone? Good, thank you. As, as, and so you understand, you understand how God is speaking to them. And so here they are, given these instructions, given these instructions, and now they have to submit themselves and follow along with this when it makes no sense. That's right, it makes no sense. Sometimes does it make sense to come up and be anointed with oil? Some of you are saying, it doesn't make sense. Why do I have to get anointed with oil? I don't know. God mentions it in James chapter 5. To me, that seems pretty good. You understand? It seems pretty good. In my own intellect, do I know it? understand it? Of course I don't understand it. But I don't understand the Trinity. I don't understand the universe. And yet I know that that's how God speaks to me. And that's how God has created what he's created. And that's why I have to take my puny mind that we have elevated to this state. Oh, we are so gifted. We know more than God. And take that mind and bury it. Bury it and say, God, I submit myself to you. If this is what you want me to do, if this is where you want me to go, I will march. And so you see this story as it develops. I mean, this is such a powerful, powerful example of the work of God. And so verse 6. So Joshua, son of Nun, called the priests and said to them, Take up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord and have seven priests carry trumpets in front of it. And he ordered the people, Advance. March around the city with the armed guard going ahead of the ark of the Lord. When Joshua had spoken to the people, the seven priests carrying the seven trumpets before the Lord went forward, blowing their trumpets, and the ark of the Lord's covenant followed them. The armed guard marched ahead of the priests who blew the trumpets, and the rear guard followed the ark. All this time, the trumpets were sounding. And these weren't trumpets that played a multitude of notes. They played only one or two notes. They called the people of Israel to worship. That's what it was about. All this time, the trumpets were sounding. But Joshua had commanded the people, do not give a war cry. Do not raise your voices. Do not say a word until the day I tell you to shout. Then shout. Can you imagine? Don't say a word. Be silent. Just walk silently behind the ark. In other words, the message to us is, let God fight your war. Let God take your side. There are more with us than there are with them. What a powerful image this is. And so here they are at this fortified city where they had no weapons really to attack it. No weapons to rip it down. And now they are obediently, obediently doing what God has told them to do. Do not give a war cry. So, had, so we had the ark of the Lord carried around the city, circling at once. Then the people returned to camp and spent the night. Can you imagine? Each night they come back to camp. I wonder what they said. I'm sure there were some doubters. This guy's lost his mind. This can't be right. What are we doing here? Marching around a wall, not saying anything? What's, what's going on? It doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense to our minds. But does it make sense that a baby would be born in Bethlehem? Does it make sense that God would take God himself and coat him with flesh and put him in a world? Does it make sense that God would take God and put him on a cross? That God would see God himself crucified? Does any of that make sense? Is that how you would construct a religion? Is that what you would say would resonate to a world? This is our God, a God who sacrifices himself? No, none of it makes sense. 
And that's exactly why God has written the story that way. Because he doesn't want it to make sense. He's not appealing to your puny mind. He's not appealing to your intellect. He's appealing to your spirit. God is a spirit. And he's speaking to our spirit and telling us what he's going to do to advance our cause. We're going to see what happens to the wall next week. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for, for the words that you've given us. Lord, this image of submission of Joshua and the people of Israel is so great. Lord, I ask you that we concentrate and grow in our faith to understand what you expect of us as we grow, Lord. What it takes to be a child of God as we take our intellect and our feelings and our gifts and our talents and our thoughts and bury them and instead say you are in charge. There are more with us than with them. Protect our men this week. Bring them back safely next week to continue the study of your word. We put all of this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for listening to 66 Lessons for Life, the men's Bible study taught by John Garippa and recorded live at the Naples Conference Center in Naples, Florida. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding so that you, the man of God, would be thoroughly equipped for every good work. For more information about the program or attending the Naples Men's Bible Study at the Naples Conference Center, go to our website at 66lessonsforlife.com.